Welcome back to From the Front Row, brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. My name is Ian Bookton, and I'll be your host today. If this is your first time with us, welcome. We're a student-run podcast that talks about major issues in the field of public health and how they are relevant to anyone, both in and out of, well, the field of public health. So on the docket for today, we have an interview that I've been really wanting to release for a while, but of course with COVID-19, our release schedule got shifted. This episode is about how local public health agencies help people in normal times. My guest is my former boss and mentor, Dr. Nalo Johnson, who at the time was the community health manager at Johnson County Public Health, but now is with the Iowa Department of Public Health as the division director of the Division of Health Promotion and Chronic Disease Prevention. Dr. Johnson shared some insights about her time in local public health, how to connect with communities in public health, and why that is so important. Finally, she even turned the interview around on me and asked me some questions about the project that we had worked on together. I will make one caveat before we shift over to that interview. Uh, This was recorded before the pandemic, so we aren't going to be touching on COVID-19. Obviously, because we hadn't really heard of COVID-19 yet since since this was recorded in November. All right, here is my conversation with Dr. Nalo Johnson. The first question I asked her was, what does a day in the life of a community health manager look like in local public health? Crazy and varied. Uh, I think it'd be easiest to start out and just talk about all of the different uh, programs that we have in community health. Uh, So we have what uh, I refer to as our communicable disease programming. So we're responsible. We have two disease prevention specialists who are responsible for following up on all uh, reportable diseases as identified by the state. It's a list of about 50 different diseases um, outside of STDs and STIs. Uh, then they're also responsible for things like school immunization audits and looking at compliance around that and investigating things like animal bites and whatnot. We have our health promotion um, programs, so that includes things like our HIV and hepatitis C testing and outreach. We have a tobacco prevention and cessation health educator. Um, We also have some smaller contracted employee programs, so like a Certified application counselors assists with people um, looking for health insurance through the marketplace, um, as well as an empowerment coordinator and a community health worker. So those are um, programs related to specific populations around chronic disease and uh, health promotion efforts. And then we have our planning and assessment team. And that includes an emergency preparedness planner uh, dealing with our public health emergency preparedness response. We have a full-time epidemiologist, systems analyst focused on performance management, quality improvement, public health accreditation, um, as well as a health planner who's thinking about our interventions as we identify different community needs. And the planning assessment team work with me on one of our our larger projects, which is our community health needs assessment and health improvement planning project. So in terms of what a day in the life of the community health manager. It's, it, it's responding to um, any of those uh, kind of immediate needs that develop in those programs. It's overseeing um, any kind of kind of budget or grant focused needs. So communicating with our different funding streams, largely the state. We have passed through funds through the state as well for some of our programs. But also it's the component from the community standpoint of being able to work with the College of Public Health, be able to work with our community-based organizations, um, and be in conversation about what they're seeing in their different 
field sectors or populations that they serve that we need to be aware of as a health department and may have some ability to assist. So that sounds like there's quite a lot going on. So, and I know you already began to talk about this, but what projects have you overseen at Johnson County Public Health? Mm-hmm. I'd have to say the the largest project that we've undertaken um, in my time here um, has been our community health needs assessment and health improvement planning process, which we have branded Healthy Joko, which you've been a major part of, so thank you. Um, so through Iowa State Code, every health department is required to conduct a needs assessment at least every five years, and Johnson County is on the five-year cycle. Um, as a part of that, we look at uh, both quantitative and qualitative data to have an understanding of what uh, community health needs are, and then subsequently develop um, a prioritization process and a plan to address those needs over this five-year period. So over the last year, we began our next needs assessment data collection effort, and we really had a large goal around uh, the concept of broad community engagement, uh, particularly as we have this focus on health equity and the social determinants of health, um, we wanted to ensure that we were able to um, engage a broad spectrum of community members to um, really twofold, to not only understand uh, how people are articulating their community health needs or what they view as the needs of the community, but also to build relationships so that they have uh, a different understanding and ways in which they're engaging with the health department. Uh, So uh, this summer we, um, along with that goal around broad community engagement, we also wanted to bring a more robust uh, data collection strategy. And so what we have created, what we call our Healthy Joko methodology, is really bridging those two goals of bringing these evidence-based, robust data collection methods with this focus on broad community engagement and had a large undertaking this summer. And with you know broad engagement and robust data collection, it, is are those the targets that focus a lot of your programs, or or how how do you decide which projects and initiatives you're going to mm-hmm. um, implement in order to serve your community? Yeah, I think we also most recently updated our strategic plan, and we actually aligned it on a five year cycle, so it aligned with our our needs assessment process as well, um, and. Our five strategic priority areas um, are very specific to what we have supported through our Healthy Joko efforts. So one strategic priority area is specific to health equity. And as a part of that, we're also um, a strategic priority area around authentic community engagement, um, as well as this idea of how do we support our professional development so our staff can utilize the most effective and efficient tools and methodologies in order to do their work. And I think what I saw reflected in what we determined for our strategic plan was really these concepts that grew through Healthy Joko and the efforts that we had there. So one example in developing our Healthy Joko method, we sought to use a student team. So we worked with 12 undergraduate and one MPH student, yours truly, uh, <laughs> um, 
who helped us go out in the field and do data collection. And um, we trained students on community-based participatory research methods. We trained students on the CASPER methodology, which is a CDC rapid needs assessment tool. We had students in the field doing intercept surveys uh, throughout the county, as well as deploying the CASPER survey in this you know, randomized selection of households for data collection and using tablets and ArcGIS and Survey123, so in a very sustainable way for data collection. Subsequently, we've had our tobacco program recently uh, deploy an effort um, in relation to the county prohibition around e-cigarettes that was adopted earlier this summer. And thus, they're choosing to use the same type of methods that we crafted this summer and how um, they're not only providing education around the e-cigarette prohibition, but also collecting information from an educational perspective on what businesses know about e-cigarette use and vaping as well. So um, to me, we have helped support um, kind of the proof of concept of how this method of thinking about broad community engagement and robust research methods really allows the health department to do their work in a more meaningful way. So I'm going to pull something out of your answer, but first I want to just throw in a shameless plug. Um, With the work that Johnson County has been doing with e-cigarettes, if you have not had a chance to listen to our interview with Susan Villata, go back a little bit if you're you're interested in Johnson County's work with e-cigarettes. But I, I want to pull out a thread. You started to talk about health equity a little bit. Why is health equity so important at the local level, and how do you foster a culture in the local health department to promote equity in all policies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that, you know, as you've seen nationally over the last five to 10 years, the conversation around health equity has become really prominent. So I think it makes sense that that's trickled down to um, the state and the local levels as well. I think we also see that um, not only within our funding streams, but just this broader conversation around we can't have one-size-fits-all methodologies for our communities and expect to see the same outcomes. Um, And that from a public health perspective, if we're not attuning to our uh, health disparate or disproportionately impacted populations, then we won't see um, further gains in um, positive health outcomes for our community members writ large. So uh, it's just that broader conversation, and I think from the academic side, the research behind that as well, um, has just been helpful to say, we need to think differently um, what what health equity means and how we're doing our work, um, and have honest conversations about how best to go about achieving those goals. So for us at Johnson County, we created our own language around health equity because I think that's part from a a capacity building standpoint. Um, People may have this kind of ephemeral idea of what health equity is, but um, when it comes down to what does it mean in their work, you know, those are conversations that you have to have as a team and talk about concretely. Um, So I know from my perspective, Personally, when I think of health equity, I'm thinking about where do these health disparities exist and being very uh, data-driven and understanding how we can see where health disparities exist and then allowing us to then pivot and move towards thinking about interventions that make sense specific to those health disparate populations. 
So that ties in that idea of community engagement as well, because if you don't have the insight of the experiences of the communities in which you're trying to, to serve, then you're not going to be able to develop interventions that make sense and have an impact, right? So um, not only from my personal perspective do I think having that data-driven focus around um, understanding a, a disease condition or a behavior within the population is essential, but the second component of being able to be in conversation with members of that community is also clearly essential to any kind of health equity effort. Yeah, and when you when you say having the conversation with the community that you're working with, I mean, we are seeing all around the country that we public health is struggling with our messaging, mm-hmm. whether it's losing battles like or starting to lose battles like vaccination mm-hmm. and even fluoridation is starting to come up as a hot topic. Uh, you know, these are battles that we won 50 years ago. Can you talk about the way that you use messaging to promote the community health needs assessment at Johnson mm-hmm. County and to work with our community here? Absolutely. Uh, a big part of what we started out with was this idea of needing to engage community members in a meaningful way. So we rebranded what was the Community Health Needs Assessment and Health Improvement Plan, or the China HIP, or some folks refer to it as a Cha Chip, as Healthy Joko. <laughs> Precisely for that reason, because we can't go out in the community and try and get people excited about giving us their opinions about what you know their personal health needs are when they don't know what it means to do a China hip. Um, and so that was precisely our thinking around our communication strategy. Um, we also use the tagline of live, work, learn, and play, which is aligning with county health rankings definition of what is health. It's found in the places where you live, work, learn, and play. And so we just felt we created the ways in which we were talking about what the health department was doing around assessment and planning in a way that people could really find accessible and engage in. We created a logo, we created a website. So as we're going out and doing these surveys, we're able to provide people with information to say, hey, check out our website. We're going to have data and information we put national, state, and local articles and and statistics up on the website for people to be able to kind of do their own legwork to build a relationship with Healthy Joko and subsequently the health department. Um, But we also will be able to use that as a communication tool where we can share out on our needs assessment findings and as we go through the prioritization process, be able to bring people in um, who may want to work on some interventions that we're developing or working with our community partners to develop. So um, I'm glad you asked that question because Part of messaging is not knowing what's going to resonate with people, but also taking the time to build relationships. And I can't underscore that enough. Through this effort, I had all of my community health staff out in the field. We also had others throughout the department across our divisions participate as well um, in either the Healthy Joe Co. chats, which were our intercept surveys, or in the field doing the door-to-door survey for CASPER and our rural incorporated survey as well. And to me, those moments were critical because it means something for our health educator or our public health nurse to be on somebody's doorstep and communicating with them about their community health needs. And in the same respect, it means something from the community member perspective to be able to know that their health department 
is willing to show up on their doorstep to have a conversation with them as well. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point that you make. And I think that from my experience in this project, it's so easy when you're in the office to be reductionist, to think that the world is just so much smaller than it really is, to even think our county is so much smaller and more homogenous or more alike than it really is. And when you really, I found it was so interesting to be able to go and knock on doors and really see people where they are and, you know, keep people in their own context. And I just learned a ton from the community that way. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you a question then, Ian. Sure. So what is one of the most memorable or surprising interactions that you had while you were out in the field? I think everything surprised me to start. <laughs> I was shocked by how friendly people were. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't really run into that many people who were just like, yeah, I, what you're doing is not valuable. Mm-hmm. People might have said, oh, we don't have enough time for you, which is a different conversation. I think... Some of the things that interested me was some of the conversations that I had with, um, I didn't realize how many mobile home communities we had here in Johnson County. And I certainly came into those with a presupposition. And when I, when I, you know, was there, I realized that people are people and, you know, people are proud of where they live. They're proud of their homes and they're proud of their communities. And I thought that that was really interesting to me. I also did not realize the demographic makeup. And so I didn't realize that I was going to be using a lot of my Spanish as I was in the different um, mobile home communities. I didn't realize that that was something that I didn't realize that was the demographic makeup of Johnson County. And so that was eye opening to see the community looked very different than I thought. And, you know, I've lived here a couple of years now and yet I totally missed that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, we were fortunate to be able to be teamed up a lot when we were out in the field. Um, And one of the things that was really striking to me, and as we're going through analysis now of all the data, um, we're talking about our findings, um, nothing in terms of, you know, here's the definitive, here's the picture (laughs) of health for the county, but more, you know, where are areas of curiosity? Like, where are we seeing something interesting in the data collection um, that we feel like we need to dive deeper into? And, you know, I guess anecdotally for me, what I found really interesting um, is being in based upon our our findings from the Casper, which was the door-to-door survey that we did this summer in Coralville, Iowa City, and North Liberty, our most three populous or highly populated uh, communities in the county. Being in a very high-income neighborhood doing surveys one evening, and then the following evening being in a mobile home community and finding that um, pretty much all of the respondents in both of those communities, when you ask them, um, our question was, are you employed? If so, how many jobs do you have? Um, do you have uh, health insurance through your primary job, yes or no? Um, and do you feel like your primary job, um, or that your basic needs are met through your employment? And that in both of these communities, the high income and the mobile home community, where we saw a distinct difference in income levels, yet almost to a T, everyone said, yes, my employment, my, my basic needs are met through my employment. And so cognitive for, cognitively for me, I have found that as an area of curiosity because we know that there are folks who aren't necessarily um, 
covered by health insurance, we know that there's a distinct difference in um, what you're able to obtain based upon your level of income. And yet in both these communities, you know, people felt that their basic needs are met. So I'm interested in what that means. And how do we as a health department then say, okay, we didn't in our question define what basic needs were. We left that up to the respondent to determine. So if we have a, a more strict definition around basic needs, will people still have the same response or will they have a different response if we say, well, we don't just mean that you have a roof over your head. When we're talking about basic needs, we may want to discuss whether or not you have health insurance or whether or not you your income covers your ability to pay for childcare and so on and so forth. Um, so that, yeah, those... Those areas of curiosity is, is where we're at now and trying to think about what kind of conversations we need to have further to, to better illuminate what's occurring in community health. Yeah, and I think that question of basic needs, it often, I feel like it strikes the heart of the American identity. Can you provide, in a way it's asking, can you provide for yourself? And I don't think that, or at least that's kind of the way that it seemed like people were starting to take that question mm-hmm. and I think that that wasn't how we first or how it how was we in, kinda, right yeah, conceived the present yeah and yet you know that that kind of psyche gets into the question because no one wants to say yeah no I can't provide for myself mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. no that's that's a good point and you're absolutely correct we didn't perceive that question to factor in the idea of you know, pride or success or anything like that. Um, and um, yeah, again, given the vast range, because we were intentional about ensuring, even though this was a random selection of households, ensuring that we were in all types of communities across the county so that we would have that broad representation of community members. Uh, we know there's a difference between a high income household and a low income household and what they're able to just have expendable income for. Um, so yeah, so it begs the question around is, are there um, further conversations that we can have to better understand what kind of needs people may be experiencing? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think my last reflection before we kind of switch over is just, the other thing I learned from this project is in my classes when I sit in front of a data set of a million a million observations, that's actually a million people and every one of those data points has a face, has a name, has a story. And so when I was able to get out and collect primary data, I realized in in my in my head when I can think about you know, when I'm thinking about this project, I can see a bunch of faces. Mm-hmm. And so when you know when I was doing the data entry for parts of the Healthy Joko project, I was entering data, I was analyzing that data, but and I was, I also could remember the faces and people mm-hmm. who were part of that data set. And I think that that's something that will absolutely follow me throughout my career to remember that the it's so easy to be detached, mm-hmm. but it's so important not to be. Yeah, that. That's a beautiful point, and thank you for sharing that. And again, I think that underscores why, you know, from my 
professional standpoint why I believe it's so important that we have our workforce in the field um, so that people remember why we're doing the work that we do um, and that we are serving others. That's public health. We serve. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it kind of in the same, same way, what's this idea of community-based participatory research and why is it so important, especially at the local level? Yeah. So it's really interesting, I guess, to share a little bit about me. Um, my PhD is in American studies. So I have spent my career um, predominantly in public health or community health efforts, um, but I had no formal training um, in public health. And um, as I've worked more and more with students and um, academics within the field of public health and learning kind of their key methodologies, I have subsequently learned that my training in American <laughs> studies is essentially a base for public health. And one of those things is community-based participatory research, which is this concept around um, working with community members to be a part of the process and understanding a phenomena within a community or within a population, um, to be a part of developing what kind of interventions, whether that's from a program or a policy standpoint, as well as being a part of that implementation of those interventions, and also being able to be accountable to community members as your following up on impact and outcomes and, and anything that's created from uh, a research or I guess a, a public health practitioner perspective, that we're sharing that with community members so that they themselves can use those tools or use that information however um, best they see fit as well. So it really goes to this concept of co-creation. And we may have as public health professionals um, a certain expertise or access or resource, but that we can't be creating these ideas in isolation without having the experience, the insight, the expertise of the community members themselves participating with us. Yeah, I think part of public health that I learned is just the humility to understand that you are on the outside of the community. And the more that you can tap into, as you're saying, you know, tap into that community knowledge, I think that the more that we do that, the better we are at reading our data and the better we are at collecting that data as well. I think you make a good point there. So if you don't mind me um, shifting a little bit, what are the skills that you need in order to be a manager in the world of public health? Well, I think some of those managerial skills, I think, just writ large, uh, regardless of what field you're in. So the kind of people management portion, uh, you're going to have those day-to-day -day duties. So understanding people's needs, understanding accountability, understanding process as you're dealing with things like evaluations or pay scales or um, kind of performance improvement, that kind of thing. Um, but I also think having somewhat of a fiscal background because you're responsible for budgets um, and being able to multitask, you know, at the local level, we have funding coming from not only our county dollars, but also from the state and federal pass-through funds. We also have the potential to have private funding if we apply for philanthropic grants as well. So that's a, a multitude of different um, budgets, grant years, funding years, along with your funding stream that you um, are accountable for. 
Um, and then also the compliance around all of those funding streams from an audit perspective. Um, I think in particular for public health, um, and particularly thinking about any of the community-based or community health-focused positions, being able to have that uh, relationship and people skill set um, is important because you are responsible to multiple audiences. So internally to your organization and your staff and your leadership, but also externally to all of your community partners. Um, and I think that um, for me personally, what I have found very useful in my career um, now is particularly moving to my new role in state level director position. Um, the fact that I have had multiple experiences in the field has really added value to my broader understanding of public health. So to be a little more specific instead of abstract. <laughs> um, you know, I started off doing needs assessment within a hospital system and grant writing within a hospital system. Um, I then moved to an evaluation role for state health department and was responsible for evaluation across their chronic disease programming. I moved to um, a management position in their communicable disease uh, division. So was familiar with the world of communicable disease from that standpoint. Um, and that served me well coming here in community health because they have both the health promotion, chronic disease prevention, and communicable disease under community health. Um, and now in my new role um, at the state will be responsible for health promotion and chronic disease prevention activities. So I share all that to say, I think the fact that I have not been trained specifically to think about public health through one lens because I've only been in one field or one division has served me well in seeing the intersections between um, a multitude of public health efforts. And if you're interested in a manager or above role, I think that's useful in growing your skill set. I like the way that you say, you know, you have that very broad approach to public health. I think that's really interesting and and yeah, probably and helpful at least for you know for my career and hopefully to some of your careers out there, listeners. So, what is one thing that you thought you knew but later found out that you were wrong about? I think from a professional standpoint, the idea that uh, if you work hard and do your job well and um, get all the right checks <laughs> that, that you um you know you always win in the end and i think you know as i've grown you know just matured as a human being but also professionally within the workplace it's much more complex than that so you know as i as i, I think about the audience for this podcast i guess that's where i'm targeting this response to is just being mindful that yes you need to work hard and and do all the right things but also recognize that you know there are other aspects that feed into your career and professional growth too. So to build those relationships, to um, make those attempts to bridge out of your safe space. And I know, you know, for example, I love how you talk about, you know, you're an epi, you love the data, but now you've recognized like 
how there needs to be so much more of a human touch and human understanding to your data. So I'm particularly proud that you've learned that before you're out in the field, right? Because that's going to impact how you will be as a professional in whatever role or the multitude of roles that you experience over your career. So I think that that's something from my that I didn't realize earlier on is just knowing there's it's more complex um, and in trying to achieve your career goals. That's a really deep answer, and yeah, I think that I think that being able to see the more in it is something that I'm starting to see in in my career as a professional, and I look forward to hopefully finding out more about that. And my last question for you today is what is one thing that's interested you outside of the world of public health or outside of the world of work? So I'll have to say that I'm a workaholic. So (laughs) um, pretty much my life revolves around thinking about public health um, 24-7. So at this point in my life, especially because you're catching me in a time of transition between (laughs) positions. So at this point in in my life, I don't have a lot of um, space to not be thinking about uh, public health. Um, I guess this is still public health related, but it's tangential. One of the things that's top of mind, particularly in Iowa, particularly this time of year, is election. And so just acknowledging that Um, as public health experts, we have insight and expertise um, to help at all levels, whether that's local, whether that's state, whether that's federal level, to help people um, understand different concepts. You mentioned before immunizations or fluoridation. Um, There's always the questions around um, federal public health prevention funding and that type of thing. So just remembering that, you know, we are trained in the field as experts and to be able to use our uh, knowledge and expertise to help inform community members, um, to help inform our local, state, and federal leadership so that they can make um, well-informed decisions about how um, bills should look, how um, money should be spent on different items. Um, they can't do that in isolation without our expertise and support. Um, so I think that's just something I'm really cognizant of right now. Yeah, and that's got to be quite the balancing act. You know, when you work in public service, you can't be partisan. You can't choose one side. Mm-hmm. And, and yet, you know, you have to ensure... Like, how do you ensure that you're giving the correct advice without being partisan? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, again, that's why I really focus on saying we are data-driven, right? So um, it's important. I'll go back to your examples around immunizations and fluoridation. Um, we have a, a long scientific history about why it's important that these things exist in our communities. So if we can share that history and we can talk about the results of life saved, uh, disease avoided, health system savings, that type of thing, we just need to be able to, going back to your point around messaging, message that in a way that's accessible to people. And it, it doesn't mean that, you know, we should not be partisan about talking about community health. 
we're here to support community health and uh, it doesn't matter what label you wear um, as long as you can share good education around um, these public health efforts. We just need to be good messengers in that way. Well, Nalo, thank you for that answer and for coming on the podcast today. Are there any last thoughts that you have? Anything that we haven't covered? Oh, goodness. Uh, No, I think you've had great questions and I've really enjoyed working with you. So it's been a pleasure. Yeah, well, thank you again. It's been a pleasure on this end as well. And uh, best of luck in the new position. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm sure I'll see you again. That was our episode this week with Dr. Nalu Johnson. This episode was hosted by Ian Bukta. This episode was edited and produced by Ian Bukta and Steve Sanye. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. If you enjoyed our podcast, please share it with your colleagues and give us a review on whatever your preferred podcasting platform is. Have a wonderful week and keep on keeping on.